Everybody gets a piece, we're going mainstream. Everybody's gonna eat, we're going mainstream. All my family is singing. See you on mainstream, we're going mainstream. Wall Street to Melrose Avenue. We're going mainstream. Venture capitalists to athletes to creators. We have an exciting episode today on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We're joined by Matthias Pastor, the co-founder of Semper, a platform that uses liquidity to align the interests of private companies, employees, and investors. Matthias and his co-founder Balthazar created Semper after observing that private companies are staying private longer and employees and founders need ways to unlock liquidity in a systematic, recurring way. Working at The Family, a European VC fund, Matthias saw that employees at some of the largest and fastest growing companies were paper rich but didn't have the liquidity that reflected the value of their shares. Matthias and Balthazar have created a liquidity financing platform to help fast-growing private companies run recurring end-to-end secondary transactions. They believe this can enable teams to retain talent while enabling investors to access high-quality private companies. Matthias and I had a fascinating conversation about how and why they've started with liquidity solutions for private companies, how they're approaching secondary market liquidity for both companies and investors, what is beyond secondary market liquidity for a platform like Semper, and why Europe is an interesting place to start. Thanks, Matthias, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your insightful views on private markets. We hope you enjoy. We're going mainstream. Matthias, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, Michael. Great to be here. Pleasure to have you on. I think it's a fascinating subject to talk about when it comes to thinking about helping both investors and employees in private markets. There's plenty of different ways to think about enabling investors to access private markets, enabling equity ownership in private markets for the various participants. Why did you start where you're starting? Private markets are huge and growing, regardless of the angle that you take with private markets. At one point, you hit a scalability wall. For all their flaws, public markets have the benefit of some kind of standardization. You just don't have that with private markets. The reason that we started with employee liquidity programs, team liquidity programs, as we call them with Semper, is that it was the best way to enforce some kind of standardization onto the market. There's so much heterogeneity amongst the instruments that are granted to employees If you want to run recurring transactions for them, you need to create a template for these transactions. If you allow for all the customization, it's just not going to work. So we said, okay, where is it that there's the most scattered types of ownership so that we can enforce one kind of ownership? Employees really fit that mold well. The other two elements that we wanted to nail in order to increase liquidity in these private markets was increasing the access to information. One of the other issues with the private markets, at least as seen by outsiders, is that you don't know anything that's going on in the companies. And it's true that if the companies aren't involved, you're really going to struggle to get any kind of information. If you start with employees, the great thing is that by definition, they are involved in the running of the business. And we only get the employees because we're signing the companies directly. The last important point was recurrence. One of the great things about public markets is that if you wake up one day thinking that Nike is a great business. You can get out of bed, open whatever brokerage account you use and buy some Nike shares. 
if you don't think it's a great business because you want to validate hypotheses X, Y, Z, you can see how those hypotheses play out. And then maybe the price will be higher, maybe it'll be lower, but you'll still be able to buy Nike in six months. Today in private markets, that's really tough. It's driven by random fundraising events. You have zero visibility as to when you'll be able to invest. But if you have these hypotheses, by the time you let them play out, the opportunity to invest might be gone. We wanted to deal with an ownership pool that would have recurring reasons to sell. And again, employees hit, hit that criteria really well because they sell for reasons that don't have to do with the value of the stock. Typically, they sell because they want to buy a house or they want to start their own company or they want to pay off some debt. When you deal with private markets, you always hit a scalability wall. In order to avoid the scalability wall, you need to increase standardization. You need to provide full information and you need to guarantee some kind of recurrence to investors. And the owner population that best fits those three criteria are employee owners of venture-backed and private equity companies. There are different ways to think about building, for lack of a better terms, an exchange. Why focus on the recurrence piece so much as opposed to more of an open exchange? There's two ends to the spectrum. Either you go for tiny transactions that are hyper-liquid, which resembles the marketplace models that existed in the early 2010s and still exist today, but I think are a bit less important than they were then or it's individual employees or angel investors that are selling their stakes to what I call prime retail investors. So people who end up buying single digit millions or hundreds of thousands of, of dollars worth of a company. Typically, those transactions don't involve enough employees for the company to be comfortable sharing information. You always struggle to bring the true value proposition to the company, which is providing liquidity to the entire employee base and full value proposition to investors, which is we're going to bring you standardization in the investment terms, and we're going to give you full information about the companies that we work with. The other extreme would be if you didn't have any kind of visibility and you were just in sort of event-driven shop where you would help private equity funds or venture funds sell big blocks of equity that they might own at a given company. But the problem you face there is the adverse selection problem. Why do they want to be selling this block? Sometimes it's going to be a very good reason. They want to send the money back to their LPs, whatever it might be. But you're out of the recurrence scenario in that case. What you're getting at is a really important point on pricing and the market setting the price. How do you think about recurrence being something that creates more standardization? And why is that either good or bad? And the other example, market sets the price. That could be either good or bad for investors or employees. What makes the way that you've thought about this and it makes sense in your mind when it comes to more recurring process where price discovery may be a little bit different? So I think in our case, the market still sets the price. It's just that the price isn't set every day. At the end of the day, we're still dealing with professional investors. The company is the one who ultimately makes the decision on what the final trade is. So the market is very much driving the prices. On the other hand, you're not getting repriced every day. So typically for the most mature companies, we'll run a transaction every quarter. But for the vast majority of the companies that we work with, it'll be on a biannual basis. So the pricing isn't a huge distraction. It's not like when you just IPO'd and employees are refreshing Google Finance every hour looking at what the price is. There is one issue with private markets is that people are really scared of the pricing conversation. We just take 
whatever the last round price was. And we consider that until there's a new primary fundraising round, the price hasn't changed. And that's one of the things I end up telling founders and CFOs all the time is, sure, you might not have marked yourself to market, but it doesn't mean that you're not marked to market. And the market still determines what ultimate price you're worth. So the recurrence aspect, if anything, I think is a positive for these companies because it gives them a sense of where they would be able to price themselves were they to go out to market today. What you're getting at is the advent of data in private markets on a more regular basis outside of traditional fundraising cycles. And you also mentioned that you provide more data to investors in that regard. Over time, how do you think that this process of discovery, let's call it, for the companies, because investors are starting to understand what these companies' financials look like, and they're going to price these secondary sales in such a way that makes sense to them. What do you think you can do with that data that will make private markets more transparent? I mean, the first thing I'd say is that before what we do with the data, I think the important part is just how much data is going to become available. When you look at the arc of private market history, it does steer towards increasing amounts of transparency. With some of these companies, you had a big movement of building in public. You have a lot of companies that share their annual results as if they were quasi-public companies, despite the fact that they don't have any regulatory requirement to do so. It's the sort of thing where the market sets a standard, and if everybody goes towards that standard, it's going to be really hard not to align. What I'm very hopeful for is that as more information gets shared, either via platforms like Semper or by the companies themselves, investors that would typically have been a bit reticent to engage in private markets because of this perceived lack of information are going to increase their participation. The core observation was in order to increase liquidity, you can't force liquidity. Liquidity is an output. It's not an input. The inputs that we do have are recurrent standardization information, and information is really just as important as standardization. People aren't going to invest more if they spend all their time looking at legal docs and the conditions behind the legal docs. They're also not going to invest more if they have no idea what the bottom line of these businesses looks like. In terms of what we can do with the data, the core focus for us right now remains increasing the amount of transactions that we can facilitate. So as we get more information, you know, on a per company basis, we can probably increase the amount of transactions that we have. If a company feels really well covered, instead of transacting once a year, maybe I'll transact twice a year, maybe I'll transact once a quarter. And then the other thing that I find interesting there is that when you have more information, you can start selling more structured products. So one of the things I'm most excited about right now in the private markets, you can either do direct investing or you can pay two and 20, if not more, to an active GP. And there's kind of no in-between where you get a diversified exposure, but for a much more passive fee structure than what's currently being charged. And I think that we might have, because of our positioning, a really unique wedge into that market. And that's only feasible if you have access to information, because nobody's going to be comfortable investing in an index if they can't see what's going on in the underlying companies. It's a fascinating topic when you think about what <clears throat> recurrence does to the behaviors of both investors and employees. I want to talk about both. So let's start on the investor side. I think to some extent that drives some of the behavior on the employee side. If we think about recurring nature of these transactions, you say, one, that it potentially enables investors to think about going directly or creating this kind of 
middle way solution in between investing in two and 20 funds, getting exposure to private markets that way, and maybe doing things themselves by creating some sort of structured products. How do you think investors will approach this in the context of they won't just invest in company once, but the recurring nature of this means they might invest to build up ownership across multiple quarters? On the investor side, I think the huge difference is going to be that we're going to leave what was really the dominant mindset of the past couple of years, which was FOMO investing in 2019 to 2021, early 22. It really felt like a lot of these private transactions were kind of gun to the head, either invest now or you might never see this name again. And that's obviously not the healthiest mindset with which to be investing, kind of made sense maybe in that context, but generally doesn't seem to be the best way to make investment decisions. I think the great thing about having this sort of quarterly or semestral access to the best companies is that you're going to be able to build up conviction. And as you build up conviction, also increase your exposure. What I think we're going to see is people coming in a lot earlier. We're already seeing it right now with growth equity funds that are doing seed and series A investments. But I think what we're also going to see is a lot of LP type investors that historically wouldn't have done a direct investment before series E or F that actually start getting direct exposure to the companies that their GPs have already invested in as early as series B and C. But those checks will be very small. And the only reason that they'll do it comfortably is because they know that they have this regular touch point with the company. If it was a one-off, they wouldn't even consider looking at it, especially given that typically they manage very large sums of money. And so making these very small investments doesn't make sense from a fund construction's perspective unless they have the guarantee of recurrence. I'm fascinated by investor behavior when it comes to private markets. How do you think investors will think about a situation where they invest into private company stock of one of the companies that's on the Semper platform at a certain price. And then this company does transactions on a recurring basis in your platform. And then for whatever reason, the price goes down. Do you think they will think about this in a similar mentality to the way in which they think about certain public market investing events where the price may go down, but they still believe in the company long-term. So then they may think about dollar cost averaging in. Is that a concept that you think will take hold in private markets because of the recurrence that you're creating with a platform like yours? The great thing about your question is that we're living through a natural experiment right now. It's still a very emergent scene, the sort of specialized secondary shops, but in the US it's existed for quite a long time and in the direct single asset space for at least 10, 15 years. In Europe, even with one hand, you have more than enough fingers to count the amount of people that are actually doing this. There's still a couple of people that are doing these single asset deals in Europe. And we're actually already seeing this now. Some of these funds were investing 2020, 2021 at multiples that are obviously much higher than the ones that we're seeing right now. And they're still long-term believers in the companies. So they're like, actually, this is a great opportunity to increase my ownership and lower my average entry points. It's something that I think is going to become a lot more prevalent. These specialized secondary shops are kind of the founding members of this secondary space in the private markets. I imagine that a lot of their strategies are going to be replicated with the investors that follow on later. It's definitely something we're already observing. 
more investors means <clears throat> more liquidity, means more transparency, which presumably means more recurrence. If we think about company side for both the founders who are trying to keep employees and the employees who have the ability to get some liquidity, what about the nature of the recurrence makes this good for them? And what does it mean for them in terms of planning their time at this company that they're at, their life, being able to buy a house, whatever it may be? How do you think about that side of the platform? That's the side of the platform that I'm most excited about. Taking a step back, I think it's important to realize how far we've come as an industry. It's incredible that granting equity has become something so mainstream. If you look at the top 50 VC-backed companies in terms of market cap, pretty much all of them give equity to their employees. And that's just phenomenal because it just means that wealth is being distributed in a way that's much more aligned with the way in which it's being created, which is really cool. And now there's a bit of a standard convention around the way in which equity is granted. Some companies have slight adjustments, but overall, people expect to get equity granted over four years with a one-year cliff. What we think is going to emerge is a similar convention around being able to sell equity. In the same way, you barely look at the terms because you know it's going to be four-year vesting with one-year cliff. We expect that when you join a company of a certain stage, you're also going to expect to be able to sell 25% of your vested equity every year if you've been at the company for at least two years. And that's going to become the norm in the way that private companies structure their compensation. I think that changes a lot of things because right now, if you look at how employees value their equity, and I think this is particularly true in less mature markets like Europe, employees put a huge discount on the actual dollar value of the equity that they're granted, which means that for the founder and the investors, they take on a lot more dilution than they would if employees valued their equity properly. I think contrary to what a lot of people think, there might be an anti-dilutive impact, or at least it might balance out because people will value the equity that they have a lot more. So you won't have to give out such big numbers is one of the impacts that there might have. And then of course, in terms of spillovers that are going to come out of this, more people selling first means people are going to feel more comfortable getting equity as part of their compensation. But then it also means that they're going to be able to do great things with the money that they get. It'll be things like getting their first house, as you mentioned, or starting their own company, putting their kids through school, whatever it may be. On this point, do you think that this will become an even stronger retention tool? A hundred percent. The thing that motivates my co-founder and I and the rest of the team is just helping the best companies be able to attract the best talent in an environment where cash has become a lot more constrained for a lot of private companies, equity is even more important. It's ever more important that equity doesn't feel like a lottery ticket. The only real way to make employees not feel like it's a lottery ticket is that they know they're able to sell it. They're not gambling on whether or not they're going to win the lottery. When they want to sell, they can sell it. The price is whatever the price is, but they can sell it. I think that over time, in the same way, it's become increasingly tough to hire if you're not giving out equity. I think it's going to become really, really tough to hire if you're not offering liquidity. It's a really interesting concept and question, because I think in the startup world, you mentioned something which is, this is a lottery ticket, and they feel they're taking a flyer on this, and 
interestingly enough, this is their only lottery ticket if you're a founder. And even if you're an early employee, that's where the majority of your exposure is. It's not to a bunch of other companies until at a certain point in time, you're angel investing or what have you. One thing I have seen with a lot of early employees is that they will consciously, maybe subconsciously because they love the startup world, build their own portfolio by working at one company early days for two or three years, get most of their vested equity, then go to the next company, do the same thing, do the same thing. And then over the span of five to 10 years, they may have two or three or four companies that they have a portfolio of, quote unquote. And I just wonder how something like this changes that dynamic because it means they can then get some equity rather than have to go somewhere else and diversify their risk. Yeah. So I think that's awesome. It's a really good point. There's a friend of mine wrote an article about this. John Ludig at at Founders Fund wrote an article called The Financialization of Everything. I'll send it to you after this, but it's exactly that. People building career portfolios on a personal level, that might also make sense. You just want to live different adventures. And so it's cool to go to different companies. What's absolutely true is that if you're only doing it to build this portfolio and diversify your risk, then there might be a more optimal way to do that. And hopefully, if you're able to sell some of your equity in order to reinvest it into other companies, you don't leave your job just to get the diversification aspect, at least not from a financial standpoint. That's a great transition to some of the stuff that we want to build as adjacent products, but we can get onto that later. One thing I want to ask on this point is... What it does is it creates a really interesting dynamic from a career choice perspective for a lot of employees. They could go to a public company where they may get granted equity, which is traded on the public markets. But in some cases, that equity is also locked up or has to vest over a certain period of time. How much do you think that a creation of something you're doing or what your competitors are doing changes that dynamic so that maybe talent doesn't have to go to the public markets because they want all the benefits of that. And they're at a certain point in their career where they need some more liquidity, but they can get that in private markets now. hundred percent. The tough thing, if you're a growth stage company is that you're kind of stuck between earlier stage companies that have more upside on their equity and public companies that have liquidity. And you're kind of in between where your upside is a bit more capped than if you were a seed or a series A company. And at the same time, your equity is just as a liquid really have kind of the worst of both worlds. And it's much harder to adjust the upside question. You can write great stories, but at the end of the day, there's only so many $100 billion companies. On the other end, you can actually adjust this liquidity thing. And we're building the infrastructure for companies to be able to do that. A lot of people are going to be able to reconsider the way they build their careers because all of a sudden your total comp package becomes a lot more attractive on a cash basis. Uh, than when your equity was this lottery ticket. At the end of the day, if you can't sell until there is an outcome, then you do have a lottery ticket. The outcome is absolutely binary. Sure, it's not a lottery ticket. I saw that the US Powerball was $2 billion. It's not like you have a one in a billion chance of winning $2 billion, but it is a binary outcome rather than something that you can sell for a distribution of different potential values, which is what you have when you have equity in a public stock. On this point, and it's not something I necessarily agree with, but I want to ask the devil's advocate question when it comes to behavior. Do you feel that people being able to sell their stock earlier as employees or founders changes their level of desire or belief that they would have in making that company a success because that is where the majority of their 
net worth maybe tied up? I think that's a completely fair question. As you can expect, we get that question quite often. And I also think it's particularly fair when you see some of the sort of very speculative behavior we've seen in some industries recently where there's full liquidity. The answer I'll give there is that we don't encourage people to be able to sell everything all the time. What we're really seeing emerge as a convention is being able to sell a portion of the vested equity. So this is very important, the vested equity as it's being earned. Typically, what we'll see is something like 25% of vested equity can be sold two years after joining. So if you take a normal employee that's going to get their equity granted over four years, that means that two years in, when he becomes eligible, he or she becomes eligible to the program, they vested 50% of their equity. And at that point, they can sell 25% of that. So they still remain very exposed to the business. Every year, they vest a bit more. And because they've been there a bit longer, they're allowed to sell a bit more. But if you look at how long it would take them to divest completely from the stock of that initial grant, it would actually take them seven or eight years, potentially even more. So it doesn't really reduce the fact that you're tied in. And then the second thing I'd say is that I think Shopify came in with this new pay structure recently, which I found really interesting, where people could pick their risk appetite by taking more cash or more equity. And I think that's something that we're going to see emerge overall a lot more as people become more sophisticated with these things. But the real question is how much cash do you want right now versus how much cash do you want in the future? That's the basic gamble behind equity. I think that your risk appetite might change depending on where you are in your life. When you're earlier on, you might want a slightly more volatile, more risk on mode. When you have kids and you have a mortgage, you want a lot more visibility as to your cash flows. Depending on the situation that you're in, you might want a different kind of comp structure. I think what we're also going to see is that potentially when we increase liquidity, the convention around the way equity is granted might change. And that question will become a bit more relevant because people won't be trapped in these four-year long contracts. Do you think companies will start to create different vesting schedules if they know people can get liquid? Maybe it goes from a standard four-year vesting schedule to a six-year or eight-year, and they know they can get some level of liquidity in that time period, but it keeps people at a company longer. I think that's possible. I think it could go either way. That might be one option, or you might see things that are actually the other way around, where some of the more mature companies have come out saying that they were going to do one-year vesting schedules just because they've reached a point where the equity ends up being repriced fairly frequently. They want people to view it more in line with their total comp, and they want to be able to reprice it on an annual basis. That might also be the case. It might be that you're granted equity on a yearly basis just because the price changes once in a while, but you're only able to sell it maybe two years later. Because the real important thing that people tend to forget is that you can only sell what you vested, and you can add restrictions. It's not because you set up a program with Semper that anybody can sell what they want. Typically, if you want to do things like people who have been at the company for at least three years can sell 50%, but people who've been at the company for four years can sell 75%. There's ways that you can tweak the liquidity requirements or eligibility requirements in order to align with your retention goals. And how does the concept of selling impact how the team may view employees or may view potential new hires. You mentioned something like somebody decides to choose cash over equity. Do you think that changes the way in which people view somebody's commitment to 
the cause or their belief in the long-term value of a company? If somebody chooses zero equity, I think it's a very valid point to bring up in an interview. Like you say you want to work here. We've given you the opportunity to become an owner here. Why are you essentially turning that offer down for a bit more money? In some cases, people will have very valid reasons for that. Like I just had a kid or I need to send money to my family. I have a relative that's sick. Whatever the reason might be, people might have really good reasons to prefer cash over equity in the short run. So there, I think it's a bit more of a case-by-case basis. Again, the big thing that matters is why are people selling? I think there are some reasons that are completely valid. There was a similar question five to eight years ago in venture when founders were asking for secondaries. And VCs would say, if you're selling, that's sending a negative signal to the market. It means that you're not really invested in this, et cetera. Now you have this counter narrative, which is actually, if you let people de-risk a bit, they're willing to go for much crazier moonshots because they want to have a bit of downside covered and they want to have a bit of diversification and they want to be able to take out a mortgage, which is really hard if you're a startup employee and you have zero cash. If you let them do that, then they're ready to go all in and go for that 10x, 100x outcome that as a VC should be the thing that you're optimizing for. That's a really interesting concept of how motivation is changed when you add liquidity to private markets. This brings up a whole really interesting discussion because I do think on the whole, liquidity and transparency is a good thing for private markets. It's good that people can get access to liquidity to solve for life events, be able to roll the dice for bigger outcomes, but still be able to benefit from that and take something off the table because everybody's working hard in private markets trying to build a great business. And they shouldn't be subject to not being able to benefit from the value that they are creating to some extent. Now, I also think liquidity in private markets also opens up Pandora's box in a sense. I don't think we can go back once it's opened up, once there's more data, once there's more transparency. If you think about what public markets are, they're daily mark-to-markets and referendums on a company's progress, whether that's justified or unjustified. What does this do to private markets in terms of creating more liquidity, changing the behavior of what this means in terms of how investors look at companies? I think that's a, that's a very fair point in terms of opening Pandora's box. Once you have more transparency and more data, you expect even more transparency and even more data. On the recurrence point, once you have a semblance of recurrence, you expect even more recurrence. So we say right now we'll do it on an annual or semestral basis. Is it going to increase to monthly and then weekly and then daily? And then you end up having complete convergence between the private and the public markets. The first thing is, again, taking a step back, there already exists liquidity in the private markets. There is a secondary market for the private markets. It's just that right now, access to that secondary market is very unequal. If you look at who is an eligible participant there, you will never see an employee You might see a founder when they're raising a primary round, they'll be able to jump on the bandwagon and get a bit of their shares sold as part of that transaction so that the buyer gets their ownership target. But you'll never see an employee. The vast majority of the volume is actually GPs selling their stakes to finance their GP commits in the following fund, or it's LPs selling their stakes to other LPs. But in reality, that actually happens. So you do have repricings of these companies in LPs books. And these LPs are the ultimate people 
who participate in both markets, both in the privates and the publics. It's also important to remind people that the idea that there is no liquidity and there is no mark-to-market in private markets isn't really true. It's just that you can't look it up on Google. That's the big difference. You don't have this distraction factor. The other thing is, I think that we're still talking about small companies in terms of size. If you look at the actual volume that happens on small to mid-cap publicly traded companies, they tend to be fairly small. Sometimes I meet with companies that are public companies, small or if not tiny cap companies, thinking of going private again, just because of how annoying it is to be a public company. They tell me the most annoying thing is that I went public because I thought it would be easier for me to attract capital. Then anytime an investor wants to invest any sizable amount, they call me rather than going on the exchange to log an order. And they're like, what's the whole point of being on the exchange? I think that what we're going to see is, is that for these more structured companies that want to run these recurring programs, it'll be kind of like those, except instead of trading daily, you'll trade once a semester and there'll be one pricing event. And then everybody goes back to building the company and see you in six months to see where the business is at. This conversation really brings up an interesting concept in the sense of how does the skill set of an investor change, whether it's family offices, whether it's the secondary funds, whether it's venture funds. I still think there will certainly be a place for venture funds, particularly as it comes to early stage. But as you get more data on companies as they grow and you get to that early growth to late growth to pre-IPO phase where presumably many of the companies that come onto your platform will be trading, how do you think if there is recurring liquidity and there are almost auctions in a sense on these companies, how do you think the skill set or the strategy of an investor may change. Does this change the way in which venture capital is conducted at the early growth to pre-IPO phase? I don't think it necessarily changes the skill set that's required. If you look at what makes a great investor, most of it tends to be find great founders and great market opportunities, and then helping in any way they can for that founder to be able to execute in that market. I don't see any reason why introducing some liquidity would change. I think the main thing that might change is that the ownership levels that are required to be involved in the business might change. Right now, there's this default expectation that you're not really operationally involved in the business, meaning like board level involved in the business. If you own less than, say, 10 15%, and usually even more, like 15 20% of the company, that's way above the minimum levels that we see in public companies, right? People consider themselves actively involved in their portfolio companies in the public markets when they have single digit ownership levels. I think that's going to be the big thing that people are going to become more comfortable with as we increase liquidity is having slightly more fragmented portfolios where instead of owning 20% of 10 companies, they'll own 2% of 100 companies and people will end up building their portfolio that way. What you're describing to some extent describes a more natural way maybe than the strategies of some of these larger growth funds, the SoftBanks, Tigers, et cetera, of the world who were basically building a diversified portfolio of private markets companies in tech. So let's index late stage private tech and we'll get exposure to everything. Some won't work, but many will. And as a result, we'll do well. We'll be able to continue to raise money. And investors will be happier with a reduced J-curve as well as 
20, 25, 30%, whatever IRR. In theory, obviously, that may not have worked out as we've hit different turn in the market. But it sounds like this construct that you're creating makes that scenario even more likely. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think it is. And honestly, this is a surprisingly contrarian thing to be saying, but I, I don't think that the Tiger SoftBank approach was necessarily a bad one. I think that they ended up being pretty unlucky in timing. And that's something that's notoriously hard to do, timing the market. But they were talking about dollar averaging. They went pretty much all in at a moment where prices were pretty high. But the strategy in and of itself makes sense. I do think that the second kind of limitation that their approach had was that at that point, the market didn't really allow for minority participation. And so they also ended up having a portfolio that was relatively concentrated because if you were calling up a founder and saying, hey, I want to put 30 million, which is 3% of the companies, the founder would be like, sorry, I don't care about 3%. I'm thinking about my next raise. I'm willing to sell 10, 15%. So if you want to invest, it's 100 or 150 million. Say if there's two or three leads, it's 50 to 75, but that's pretty much it. You couldn't get these small, really diversified positions, which is a lot easier to do if you're going through secondaries and you're buying off existing shareholders. One thing I do want to bring up just so everybody understands, and I think is important in a time like today where access to capital may be a bit more constrained. In many respects, your platform is talking about secondary sales of employee shares, founders or employees, or potentially early investors. Most cases, that's going to be common, not pref. And if these are secondary sales, then capital doesn't necessarily go back to the company and then can be used for operations. There are mechanisms and constructs for that to happen. Companies can buy back the stock and then they can then put that on the balance sheet and then they can sell secondary kind of in a different construct. Does your platform provide for that as well so this benefits the company's balance sheet in addition to just benefiting the company's employees or early investors? The short answer is no. The slightly longer answer is that employees tend to hold options. And so one of the things that changes is that on the balance sheet, instead of having the strike prices, which are listed as an asset by the company because employees will eventually exercise those options, it becomes cash. Because when you exercise your option, you have to pay some cash to the company. And in some cases, that can be fairly material. Like it'll rarely be hundreds of millions of dollars, but it can easily be single digit million, if not tens of millions of dollars. When we run a transaction for a given company, I'd say that somewhere between 5 to 30%, if not more sometimes, of the cash, of the transaction volume, actually ends up going to the company in the form of strike prices, which is something non-negligible when you think about secondaries, is that actually a non-trivial amount goes back to the company. Interesting. How do you build a brand and how do people then identify the brand? That's a super interesting question. And it's one of the things that we spend the most time thinking about. How do you build a brand in the financial services industry full stop? Before you even go to the specifics of what we're trying to build. How many great brands are there out there? Honestly, relative to market cap, I'd say the financial industry doesn't do a great job of brands. The NPS of the average financial industry provider is actually relatively low. On the neobank side, you have some really interesting things, but on the sort of more wealth management side, it's still very nascent. The great thing about the business that we're building is that because of our client base, 
we get to be associated to something cool. So that's the first thing we piggyback off of the brand of our clients. That's something that's very powerful because we get to work with some of the most iconic companies of our generation. Not only do we piggyback off their brand in general, we piggyback off their brand with regards to something that's particularly interesting to a lot of people in the wealth management space, which is the wealth that they've helped create because we're helping people transform their shares into cash. The way that we think about it is that every change that there's been in the history of how companies are formed, how companies grow, has been accompanied by a new set of financial institutions. And every change has created its own set of problems, which a new generation of companies was uniquely suited to take on. You can take this as far back as some of the oldest banks, Monte Pachi di Siena in Italy, some of the banks that were formed in the US during the Industrial Revolution. And then you take some of the market makers that were formed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when the world started becoming more globalized. All of them were responding to a unique change in how the economy behaved. I think that we're uniquely positioned to build a brand that has to do with this sort of new venture-backed wealth creation that doesn't exist yet, that couldn't have existed even 20 years ago because there wasn't a market for it, but which exists now because, as the podcast said, outs have gone a bit more mainstream, so there's enough room to build something like this. I think you bring up a fascinating concept of building a new brand of financial services. You mentioned another thing that was interesting earlier on, which is that Europe is even more greenfield in that respect. What makes Europe such an exciting place to start? When people ask us, why doesn't this exist? The two answers that we give is one timing, which I just mentioned, I don't think that 10 years ago is the right moment for this business. The second, I think, is that a lot of the people who've attempted this are typically US players. And you know, Europe, for all its flaws and for all its fragmentation, actually gave us one huge benefit which is that we had to think about the market internationally from day one. Why is that a benefit? Obviously, it comes with a lot of complexity because it means that we need to be able to administer equity types and derivatives in dozens of different jurisdictions. But it's also a blessing because it means that we're able to work with companies that have employee bases spread out across different countries. If you look at the best companies in the world, at one point, they want to expand outside of their home territory. And so they all end up doing that. Europe is a great training ground for us because we're dealing with companies that are international very early on. It means that we've built our product in a way that's designed to serve these international companies, which is something very unique and which is very important when you're dealing with liquidity because liquidity is a very political topic within companies. If you're a U.S. HQ'd company where you have 80% of your employee base in the U.S., but you have 20% spread across the U.K., France, and Germany, and you say, we're going to give liquidity to our employees, and you're working with a provider that can only administer U.S. employees, then what you're effectively saying is the 20% of European-based employees won't be able to participate in this liquidity program. That's the best way to cause a riot in your European offices. Being able to work with companies that our international day one is one of the huge benefits of being a European-born company. That's fascinating to think about Europe being the place to start and build a big business from there. We didn't really touch on competitors. How do you think about yourself different to some of the other competitors in the market? There's Carta with Carta X. Forge does something similar. You're doing things your own way. 
you're also based in Europe to start. Not that those companies don't cover Europe as well in some way, shape or form. How do you think about your differentiation and does Europe play a role in that differentiation as well? Europe plays a role for now. We have every intention of being present anywhere there are people trying to build iconic companies. That means the U.S. very soon and other interesting geographies afterwards. In terms of our differentiation, the first one comes down to focus. As I mentioned, this isn't an add-on or an adjacent product that we're building on top of some kind of legacy product. It's the core of what we do. We build on top of the incredible infrastructure that Companies like Carta or Leggy or Pulley or Capdesk that was recently bought by Carta have built and make private market transactions easier. But we're also building on top of the hard work of a lot of great law firms and stuff that have pushed towards some kind of standardization for these private market transactions to be smoother. I think that's the big differentiator is one, we're focused on solving this problem. Two, we're working with the company and for the company rather than readjusting our model because the market has shaped. That is our DNA. We always will work with the company. It's a great segue into how I always end this podcast, which is what is your most interesting or favorite alternative investment? Wow. I think the problem with podcasts like this one is that it's making a lot of the fun stuff become much more mainstream, much faster. A year ago, I would have found myself edgy talking about music rights, but now music rights is a crowded trade. I'm still a bit surprised when I see how few people participate in private equity secondaries, to be honest. I think relative to value, that's still one of the most underappreciated ones, just because of how big the market is and how little competition there really is. I don't understand why people think they can win deals against Insight and Sequoia. There's so many people who want to start their venture funds, and they go out and they try to compete against Sequoia and Insight. And they could buy into Sequoia and Insight portfolio companies via secondaries, but they don't because it's not glamorous. I think that's what outs are supposed to be, is finding alpha in places that don't have the glitz and the glamour of other asset classes. And secondaries are definitely in that category. I still think there's fun stuff to be done. I meant to answer your question in a way that's not just advertisement. I think there's also fun stuff to be done in micro illiquid stuff. The people that I know who made the most in the past two years, like the most out way was probably on niche watches and things like that. Obviously, it comes with a lot of complications. It's not something in which you can run a billion dollar strategy. It was one of the fun ones and not one that I'm an expert in by any means. I don't have a watch. That's a market that's becoming less opaque too. I think some of the constructs that you're talking about with Semper are now being applied to different parts of the alts ecosystem because in large part, you have the technology infrastructure. The market infrastructure is changing. You don't have the same construct in the watch market as you do in other corners of private markets like equities where you have as many funds, but funds are going to be created in a similar way once you have the data. And I think the concepts and constructs are relatively similar. You do bring up a really interesting point, though, and I don't think it's just an advertisement in the secondary spaces. There's been a wall of capital that's been put into private markets, whether it's venture or private equity. So much of that capital has been deployed, and yet there's not nearly as many buyers or participants in the secondary market. So that does make for a pretty interesting imbalance that has to be solved in some way, shape, or form, and to some extent can be solved through the likes of a platform like a Semper. Absolutely. The dream is that 
we're just a place where a cottage industry of secondary buyers can emerge. And we're really excited. We're seeing it more and more, both in the US and Europe. I'm sure that if we speak again in 18 months time, there'll be a dozen, if not more funds that will have been announced in that space. Well, maybe in addition to making alts go more mainstream, you said something about secondary purchases of stock seeming less glamorous. Maybe I don't mean to say things in a way that it's like we want to make certain parts of private markets cooler than others, because I think it's all fascinating and not the coolest investment isn't necessarily the best investment. But maybe in addition to making alts go mainstream, you'll also make secondaries slightly more glamorous or at the very least having exposure to it may be something that practically makes sense. A hundred percent. And that's, I think, honestly, something where we're fighting against some kind of stigma as people really see secondaries as the less noble way to enter companies. But because we're flipping the model on its head and bringing in companies into the discussion, it's not something where management isn't involved. I'm pretty sure that in the same way, people are very proud of being on the boards of some of these companies in a couple months or years time, people won't be ashamed of saying that their first purchase was a secondary purchase. Hey, at the end of the day, net of fee returns are what matters most. And there are different ways to get and access high net of fee returns. You just have to figure out the right way to do it, right methodology that works for you. Not to say that there's one specific way to do it or not, but at the end of the day, glamour and success, more importantly, comes from the best returns. But as you said earlier, you're fascinated by investor psychology. I think that even though in the long run, net of fee returns is what rules everything, I think in the short run, glitz and glamour matters a lot more than any of us would care to admit. <laughs> and things will change there. We're seeing it. We're seeing it every day. It, absolutely. And I think that's the other learning from current world we live in is it's slow and steady wins the race. What's interesting about the secondary market is this also enables companies to be more slow and steady, focus on building a sustainable business that will help create the most value for employees that they can either get some liquidity on or keep and then create more value over time. So Matthias, it's fascinating to hear what you're doing with Semper. It's an incredibly exciting addition to private markets. So thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. And thanks again for that incredible summary. Couldn't have said it by myself. Take care. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going